0: this episode is sponsored by linode do you need a linux server for your latest creation then check them out they provide ssds 40 gigabit per second network connections and top-of-the-line hardware to run your server on it deploys linux in seconds from the Linode Cloud and you can choose your Linux distro and node location right from the manager. They have locations in Asia, North America, and Europe, and they have a sweet set of tools to make it easy to manage it. If the web interface isn't your thing, they also have an API and a command line, so definitely go check them out. They also provide two-factor authentication, IPv6, DNS manager, cloning, scaling, and everything else that you want. So definitely get the most out of your Linux node and check them out at linode.com. And check them out at devchat.tv slash Linode. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we are talking to Jason Sweat. Jason, you want to say hi? Hello. Now, uh, you were a host on Ruby Rogues for almost a year. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to just give people a quick intro, though, for the people who maybe have just started listening to the show and don't know who you are?
1: Yeah, sure. So my name's Jason Sweat. I'm primarily a developer. I've dabbled in some other things like uh, corporate training and and ebook authorship, and we can talk more about that stuff as we go. But uh, yeah, historically, I'm a developer. I've been using Ruby on Rails for a number of years now, probably about six years. And before that, I used a bunch of other technologies. Been making some form of websites. Since around 1996. Wow. On a dial up modem.
0: (laughs) The good old days. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, I I was doing some of the same stuff, but it wasn't that serious. I was in high school and just goofing off on the web. So, yeah, so we usually ask a number of questions uh, just to kind of get a feel for who you are and how you got into Ruby and all of that fun stuff. So, Mm -hmm. if you're ready, we'll go ahead and start asking probing questions. Let's do it. All right. So the first question is, how did you get into programming?
1: So my dad's a programmer also. So I kind of had access to computers from an early age. Uh, One of my earliest memories is when my dad was doing something on the computer at home and I was like crawling around on the floor. I wasn't a baby, but I was like playing on the floor. And I hit like the power button for the surge protector or something like that. (laughs) And, you know, it wasn't like today where Google Docs, like, auto-saves your stuff every five seconds or whatever. My dad was working on something, and I turned the computer off, and that was just it. And he lost, like, a bunch of work. So that was one of my earliest computer memories. But that was when I was really little. Um, I think, like, we did – in school, we did some, like, basic stuff. So that was an intro I got to programming that was, like, separate from anything to do with with my dad. And I kind of, like – gravitated toward that like i could tell that like among the students in the class like i was pretty comfortable with that kind of stuff compared to the other kids and then i found i found like this old pascal book that my dad had i don't know why i never i don't think i like learned anything directly from my dad for some reason but i found this book that he had on pascal and so i started just like trying to teach myself pascal And I don't think I ever, like, made anything that actually did anything, but I just thought it was cool to be able to, like, type stuff and run it, and then stuff happened. It usually, Mm -hmm. like, wasn't – it didn't match up with what I expected to happen, but I would change code and things happened, and I thought that was pretty neat. So that was was the very beginning, but then, like I said, around 1996 – Uh, We got internet at home like before anybody else in our town pretty much, Uh, the 14.4K dial-up. And so I thought the internet was cool, um, and I wanted to figure out how to make my own website, so I learned a little bit of HTML. Uh, And I had one of those things. You probably remember this, Chuck, where it's like you have your internet service provider, Mm -hmm. and there's like their website address for the ISP, and then it's like slash tilde j sweat or whatever it is yeah did you have one of those Chuck?
0: i did uh, most of my work though i did on like GeoCities and angel fire and stuff and i played oh Zon, yeah so. yeah.
1: i definitely did that too with the hit counter at the bottom
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah so that's kind of how i got started
0: awesome so yeah so you kind of get into programming by the way i did some pascal back in the day as well and oh, then okay. yeah in like eighth grade it was part of our i was part of a math club and we did it for the math club and then yeah, I started playing with web technology in high school, which was around 95, 96. I graduated in ninety-eight. And yeah, so I, I definitely identify with that. But yeah, so you you get into programming, you're you're fiddling around on the web. And then how did you get into Ruby?
1: Okay. So one of the one of the like challenges that I had early on with with web programming was like I understood that you could have a form on a website. And have uh-huh. people type stuff into that form and then click submit. And then you do some stuff somehow and show like another page after that form. Right. But I couldn't figure out how to do it. Like I knew that you could like use JavaScript to take the form input and like output stuff on that same page. But I wanted to like submit to a different page. Uh, but I couldn't figure out how to do that. And I, I had questions like how do i take like input and like save it permanently if only there was a way to like save stuff somehow i didn't even know what what a database was but eventually i kind of figured that stuff out um i think my first like web application experience was perl
2: uh-huh
1: and so like i gradually came to understand that you would have perl on the server side and then when you hit submit on the form it talks to the server and then it's perl that does that stuff Mm-hmm. Um, so one of my first web applications that I wrote was this like incredibly insecure chat program where you just had a text <laughs> area. You could type whatever you wanted into the text area uh-huh. and then hit submit and it would just like append your text. I think I just had a, a file, a text file where I was saving all this stuff. Whatever you typed in would just get slapped onto the top of that file
2: mm-hmm. and
1: then the page was just like literally that file getting output. So I did that. um, And then I had just like gradually uh, increasing sophistication to my, to my programs where in 2005 um, I first came across the MVC pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, And I used, I used the symphony framework. Uh, pretty shortly after discovering MVC, that was a PHP framework. Right. A lot. Of, a lot of people have probably used Symfony recently. Symfony back then was way different than Symfony is now. But I used that, and I liked it a lot. Um, I liked the organization and structure that the MVC pattern provided. And I did PHP for a long time. So from like 2005 to 2012, I did PHP, and that was a lot of different technology symphony code igniter drupal uh all those popular frameworks this is way before like laravel and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i thought php was uh i thought it was fine like there's this there's this little saying or whatever there's a young fish an old fish swimming in the water and the old fish asks the young fish how's the water and the young fish says what's water And so that's kind of how I was with PHP. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I like didn't really have a frame of reference because I hadn't used a heck of a lot of other stuff. Um, You know, I'd used Perl before that and to me with my very limited experience, it just kind of seemed similar to Perl. Uh But then I got bored one day and I started teaching myself Lisp. And Lisp was a lot different from PHP and the more I used Lisp and discovered the features that Lisp had, the more I thought, "Hey, I like Lisp and maybe PHP isn't so great." But this was this was around like 2009, I think, mm-hmm. and this was before like Closure got really big and stuff like that. People weren't really building serious web applications in Lisp at the time. So I thought, "Well, if I can't use Lisp For programming, if I can't like make a career transition into being a Lisp programmer, is there something that's like the next best thing? And I discovered that Python and Ruby were apparently kind of influenced by Lisp. So I started checking out Python and Django and I started checking out Ruby and Rails. And I liked both Python and Django and Ruby and Rails quite a bit, but I liked Ruby just a little bit more than Python and I liked Rails just a little bit more than Django and the reason for that was like uh, there's that thing the the principle of least astonishment and I thought Ruby both Ruby and Rails did a better job of following the principle of least astonishment Mm -hmm. than Django Um, kind of just stuff that you would expect to be there was there and you expected things to work a certain way and that's in fact how they did work and I appreciated that about Ruby and about Rails. So as soon as I did that, I'm like, okay, how can I like leave PHP behind as fast as possible and transition into a, a career doing Rails? Um, and the way I did it was I built a side project in Rails, and I maintained that one single side project for actually about five years. Um, and I had actual users using it And so it wasn't just some like hello world type application. It wasn't some like to do app that I built in a weekend and then, you know, stuck in my GitHub and never touched again. It was like a living, breathing project that had actual like a production environment, staging environment, all that kind of stuff. And I, I was exposed to the kind of problems you would have in a real production application. Mm -hmm. And so that was almost like as valid of experience as paid work experience. And so I used that project uh, as a uh, as a wedge to get me some actual paid Ruby projects. Uh, so like 2011 to 2012 was kind of my transition period when I was overlapping between uh, PHP and and Rails, doing them both at the same time. But I think since 2013, I've haven't done uh, well. I haven't done PHP since then. I've done mostly Rails since then.
0: Awesome. Yeah, so I I love that you kind of tried it out first and kind of figured out which way you wanted to go. What was it about Ruby and Rails that really appealed to you? Well,
1: like I said, just I would expect it to, like I would type in something. I can't think of an example off the top Mm -hmm. of my head. Um, But let's say you just type in a string and then you do dot length. You know, you would expect that to give you the length of the string and in Ruby, it does. It probably does in Python too, I don't know. Um, but just stuff like that, like I would mess around with it and I'd be like, Hey, I wonder if I can do this and yeah, I could do that. And so I appreciated that about it.
0: That makes sense. It's funny because, you know, you're kind of talking about it in sort of vague terms. It did what I expected it to do or, mm-hmm. you know, I hear other people say, you know, it just felt natural to program in, which is, feels kind of like what you're saying. And yeah. when I interviewed Amir Rajan, who does Ruby motion. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentioned the kind of the, the the feeling of Ruby or I think he said the ethos of Ruby. Okay. And, you know, just that, I, I guess it's a kind of a non, It's it's really hard to quantify what it is, but there's just something there in the way that it feels and the way that it writes and the way that it reads that, yeah, it just kind of has that. It does what I expect. It is what I expect. It's, you know, anyway.
1: Yeah, that was one part of it. And there, there were definitely other more concrete things, like, for example, the map function. Uh, I I think PHP has that now, but it didn't at the time as far as I know. Um, you know, you can take an array and do map and apply some action to each element in that array. And then the return value is is all those elements packaged up into a new array. To me, that was like, "Wow, that makes so much sense." Why did I never like use a language that had this feature before? And again, like I'm pretty sure Python has the same thing. I just like Ruby's version of all that stuff a little bit better.
0: Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So the other question I have is, what kinds of contributions do you feel like you've made or that you're most proud of in Ruby?
1: Good question. So I think my kind of if I have a unique talent. It is explaining complicated things in kind of an accessible way. And so I applied that that skill of mine um, in blogging. So I've been writing like technical blogs for a really long time. But I think most programmers, including myself most of the time, is just like I write a blog post about some random problem I'm having one day. And if you look about if you look at my personal blog, there would be like no common thread that runs through everything, except it might be like the same language or something like that. But then I started a, a blog, angularonrails.com, which I know mm-hmm. you know about, Chuck, yep. where it was all just about one topic. That kind of came out of my um, my frustration with trying to use Angular on top of Rails. So this was when I first started doing this. This was like 2013 or 2014. I had been using Rails for a couple years, so I was comfortable with it. And I was adding Angular to my stack of skills. Um, but there wasn't a lot of guidance out there. Because the thing is, like, Angular is made by Google. So right. Google has an incentive to produce documentation for Angular.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Rails is made by Basecamp. And so Basecamp has an incentive to produce documentation for Rails. But there's no organization that has an incentive to create documentation for the angular rails combination that's probably going to be pretty much true of any combination of technologies like that um and so for that reason what that means is that the documentation just doesn't really exist Mm -hmm. so i would uh i would google like first of all how do you even structure an angular rails application that was my first question before i jump into this and and bake in a directory structure that i'm going to have to mm-hmm. live with for a while uh, i wanted to do a little research and find out like how do other people do it but i couldn't really find an answer and there were other things like that too like how do i deploy this application how do i do authentication um couldn't find good answers so i kind of sensed an opportunity there and i and i uh you know, my first idea with like anything is to go register a domain. So I have this huge collection of domains that I'm never going to do anything with. <laughs> but in this case, I registered angularonrails.com. I was just like, mm-hmm. how is this not taken already? Right. I couldn't pass that up. So I took it. And that was great for SEO probably. Um, and I just started writing posts about it. I ended up, I was really surprised when this happened, but I got a, uh, one of my posts is like how to wire up and Angular and, no, how to wire up Angular and Rails as a single-page application or something like that. I submitted it to Hacker News, and it made, like, the front page, and not just the front page, but, like, spot number three
0: or something like that.
1: Yeah, and I had never had anything... Actually, I think I had one thing go up on Hacker News before, but never, Uh like, to that degree. Right. Um, So when that happened, I'm like okay, I think I have something here that, like, people are actually interested in. And I figured if I wrote more about it, then that would, like, get interest, too. And so I wrote mm-hmm. more about it, and it did get interest. Um, And that was kind of an illustration to me as to, like, rather than just writing, like, a bunch of random blog posts about miscellaneous stuff, picking, like, one kind of narrow topic. Um that worked out a lot better for me and I had all this traffic and I wanted to like monetize it. But for the longest time I couldn't figure out how to way to make, I couldn't figure out a way to make money off of my blog. Uh huh. I had AdSense on there and I would make like five bucks a month or something like that. That was kind of neat, but obviously you're not going right. to be able to do anything with, with that money. Um, long story short, Somebody gave me the idea at some point. This is actually MicroConf. Chuck, you, you know about MicroConf?
0: Yeah, I love that conference. <laughs>
1: yeah. So this was MicroConf 2016. Were you at that
0: one, Chuck? Yeah, I've been at MicroConf every year for the last three or four years.
1: Okay. Yeah, and just side note, if you're listening to this, you're a developer, you have some interest in starting your own business or even just like a side project that makes some money. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a great conference to go to. You'll find a lot of like-minded people there, I think. So I was there, and I was talking with some people, and they were like, why don't you uh, take your Angular on Rails blog? I had about 5,000 visits a month of of traffic. I was telling this to people, and they're like, wow, that's really good. And I'm like, oh, really? I mean, you, I don't know. Like, I didn't have any have any frame of reference to know whether that was – a good amount of traffic or not, apparently it was right um, and they said you should do a pre-sale you should pre-sell you should presell courses for some reason I didn't want to pre-sell courses i I ended up preselling an ebook and so I did that. Seven people bought the ebook. It's not a lot, but it was enough to tell me that it wouldn't be a total waste of time for me to uh, to do it and so I pulled the trigger. On that and I spent it was probably only like two months that I spent writing the book and it was only like an hour or two a day of effort it really was like not a lot of extra time it was not like a stressful process or anything like that and when I say ebook you know this is like a 50 page ebook it's not like a serious in-depth uh definitive book or anything like that it was like just enough to Mm -hmm. help people with those few things they needed help with, like deployment authentication, those things I mentioned earlier. And so that, that worked out pretty well when I released the book for real. um, I don't know how many people bought it exactly, but I made like roughly a thousand bucks when that book launched, which is like, you know, it's only a modest success, but for me at that point in time, it felt pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, that's kind of the story with, with that.
0: Yeah, that's great. And it's funny because, uh, a lot of people, they kind of get the idea, Oh, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to make a course and they just never finish it. And this is where I yeah. have my head in shame because I have a course in the works that I haven't finished. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. It um, happens. But yeah, I mean, you know, I just applaud you for, for getting that done.
1: Yeah. And it was, uh, It was not a small amount of work, but it also was not a gigantic amount of work either. And I want to emphasize one thing because people ask me this kind of a lot, which is, was I like an Angular expert when I started doing this? And the answer is an emphatic no. Um, When I started, when I like committed to writing the book, it perfectly coincided with when Angular 2 came out. And so all of my Angular 1 knowledge was, like, no longer any good because Angular 2 was pretty much a full rewrite. And so at the exact moment I committed to writing this book, uh, all my knowledge became invalid. And so I had to start over from scratch. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I wrote a book um, on a technology that I hadn't really used yet before writing the book and didn't know anything about before writing the book. But that's okay. I was talking to this guy one time who who knows a lot of technical authors. Uh, and I think Chuck, you and I both know some some technical authors mm-hmm. too. And so you might be familiar with this. Uh, he said, people don't write books because they're experts. They write books to become experts. And I thought that that was really interesting because I had it totally backwards. I figured that when I read these technical books, Uh, it's like people just kind of doing a brain dump of all this stuff they know from their years of experience. And sometimes that is the case. But I think a lot of the times, the person um, might have been experienced with the technology before, but they really had to do a lot of research in order to write it all down. So that's kind of an encouraging thing to know that you don't have to be an expert before you embark on that kind of thing, especially if it's just an ebook, as opposed to a a book for a publisher, right? So yeah, that's how that went. And just to kind of wrap up that story, I made decent money for the first few months of of that. And if anybody's interested in details, you can go to JasonSweat.net, and I I used to do like uh, monthly reports of exactly uh-huh. how much money I made and stuff like that. So if you're interested in in seeing those numbers, they're they're available to look at. Um. But it made pretty good money for a while and then kind of petered out. I also discovered some things about, um, about that business. One is uh, you and I were talking about this before the call Chuck. Angular changes so fast, or at least it has been, that my, my material would go out of date really fast. So I would put up a blog post. And I tend to like to write really long blog posts that go into great detail. So I would put something out there. And then just like a month later, it would be out of date. And so I would have to go back and update it. And if I have all these blog posts and a whole ebook, that's a lot of maintenance work. And so it was like running as fast as I can just to stay in one place. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit challenging. I also discovered that the kind of people who are interested in uh, building an Angular Rails project, for whatever reason, most of the people um, who found me, they were working on side projects. So it wasn't a situation like I have this project at work and we're like porting it from jQuery to Angular and all of a sudden like we have this big problem that we urgently need help with or something like that. It was never that. It was always like I'm a Rails developer and I want to make myself more marketable so I'm going to teach myself
0: Angular. Right.
1: Um, And so I can help those people a certain amount but what I wanted was some kind of business where... um, where I could be serving businesses and where I could email my list of buyers and say, like, hey, I have some availability for contract work. Um, do you want to work together? Every time I sent an email out like that, I got nothing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There was one single time where I got a project that was like less than a day's worth of work. And so that was that was a little bit of a bummer to have that discovery because I kind of bought into this promise that if you built a list of a bunch of email subscribers, Uh, who are interested in a certain topic, you could just send an email out and immediately just get all these leads and all this consulting work and stuff like that. And that wasn't the case for me. And so given that combined with like the fact that the business was, was declining revenue wise, I decided to take a step back and say, okay, what could I write about that's evergreen that I wouldn't have to go back and, and continually update and stuff like that. And also You know, how can I do something that's going to reach preferably business owners who are going to want uh, consulting work and maybe some some training type stuff, too? And I spent a long time just uh, trying really hard to think of something and not being able to think of anything. But finally, (laughs) finally, I arrived at uh, AWS and Rails and I'm at the very early stages of uh, of doing that. I decided to kind of do a little bit of research first and see like okay um, in 2017 how hard is it to deploy a Ruby on Rails project to EC2 and it turns out what I found was like six different blog posts that had like six different ways of doing it none of which really worked mm-hmm. and so I was I was actually glad to find that because that means there's an opportunity for somebody to come along and do a better job of documenting that stuff so that's my new project
0: gotcha so i think it's interesting just from from the standpoint of a you you went into a business um i don't know how much validation you did with it it sounds like you had quite a list there Mm -hmm. um but yeah a lot of people they kind of get this idea right that it's okay i want to go out and i want to build a thing that people are going to send me money for and it's going to help a bunch of people and yeah, when it comes right down to it, you know, it, it doesn't always turn out the way that they wanted. So, uh, you know, at what point do you find that people should kind of cut bait?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And by the way, um, Angular on Rails was my sixth attempt at building a product business. And it was only the second one that made any money. So that was definitely, it, it took me years of painful uh, trial and error before I, I got to that point. And I forgot what you even asked me, Chuck. Oh, yeah. When do you, when do you know how to, how do you know when to cut bait? And that's a really tough question to ask because there's this, there's this challenge where you ask yourself, am I being persistent or am I being stubborn? And it's really hard to know the difference between persistence and stubbornness. Um, and really a lot of it is just gut feel. For me personally, um, Like, the reason why I decided to... I didn't shut down Angular on Rails. I just kind of put it on the back burner because it doesn't really cost any time to maintain Mm -hmm. uh, as long as I'm just leaving it out there in its current state. Um, For me, I I didn't want to be in possession of something I had to continually go back and re-update. And frankly, like, this is a whole other can of worms, but, like, I think most of the applications... That are SPAs, single page applications, mm-hmm. they really, the use case doesn't justify it. Like most applications are fine as a quote unquote traditional application where it's just like Rails with maybe a tiny bit of JavaScript sprinkled on top of it. And there are legitimate use cases for sure where bringing a front end framework into the picture is a good idea. Um, but I, I don't buy into it as like a go-to stack because it it introduces a lot of complexity. And if the use case doesn't justify that complexity, then you just have extra complexity for for no reason.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And extra complexity for no reason is never a good idea. And so I found myself kind of uh, teaching this methodology that I myself didn't really completely believe in. And so that was also a big factor for me in, in moving on from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if anybody is curious about, you know, they're thinking of making some some money from a side project, but they don't know how, I wrote this post on Indie Hackers, uh, which by the way is a really great resource for programmers who who want to do something entrepreneurial. Um, I wrote a post on Indie Hackers, kind of going into detail on how I built Angular on Rails and how I think somebody else could duplicate that same thing. Basically, if you take any pair of technologies, like I did with Angular and mm-hmm. Rails, if you find that the documentation that's out there isn't very good, then that's an opportunity for you to be that person who creates that better documentation. You now, you can't just pick any two technologies and expect it to work. Because for example, um, let's say you, you thought of React and Rails. Well, you and me, Chuck, we had uh, Justin Gordon on the show. Mm-hmm. It seems like he pretty well has that area covered. And so if you were to pick that particular combination, you, you might have some pretty stiff competition and you might not even have much to bring to the table that's not already out there. Um, so there is there is some discernment that has to be applied there. You have to find you have to find something that's either like new or sufficiently uh, niche that there's not a lot of good documentation out there, mm-hmm. but it also has to be sufficiently popular that you can attract enough people to uh, to get the kind of revenue you want.
0: Right, yeah, that makes sense. And it's interesting too, I mean, the landscape's changing. You know, Some people are moving away from Rails in favor of things like Phoenix and Elixir, and then you have mm-hmm. other people who are moving away from Angular toward React or Vue, and you know, yeah, all of these are moving targets, you know, Rails 5.1, you know, they added Webpacker, and I'm sure that impacts things if you're building a, a product for Angular and Rails, because all of a sudden it's, oh, well, it kind of has this uh, built-in, you know, thing that, you know, does sort of what I was telling people how to do as far as set up uh Angular and Rails. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it gets kind of interesting fast. So I definitely follow that. So how do you settle on something then, like AWS and Rails?
1: A big part of it was the evergreenness of it. You know, AWS changes a lot. I understand. I, you know, at this moment in time, I don't know a lot about AWS. I expect to educate myself a whole bunch in the coming months. Um, but right now, I don't know very much about it. Um, other than it's growing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, as far as like. They're adding a lot of new services all the time and stuff like that. But when I logged in recently, when I created an account and started doing my uh, Rails and AWS Hello World blog post, it didn't seem a heck of a lot different than it was when I last used it in uh, mm-hmm. 2015, so two years ago. Um, so, you know, I, I have a pretty pretty strong expectation that the things I would write about today would generally be true a year from now and two years from now. It's not that they're going back and changing the way the old stuff works. It's more like they're just adding new stuff, I think. So that's one reason. Um, but also like the JavaScript world is kind of fickle. Uh, like I'm trying to think of some examples of stuff that has kind of uh, came and gone. Well, Prototype is a good example. That's a really old example, but there were a bunch of people using that a long time ago. Now nobody uses that. Um, jQuery was the mm-hmm. dominant library for a really long time. People do still use it, uh, but nobody wants to be like, hey, my main proficiency is jQuery. Like that, that doesn't sound very cool these days.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, well, and,
0: and a lot of people mm-hmm. are using things like angular and react and things like that and build the components. And a lot of those capabilities are now just built into those libraries, whether they use some light version of jQuery or something completely custom.
1: Right. Yeah. And I guess like a lot of the uh, browser inconsistencies that jQuery smoothed away have, they're, they're not a thing anymore. Uh, like that stuff is just native now. So one of the big use cases of jQuery just doesn't apply anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Angular, uh, at least at one point, was super hot. It probably is still super hot, but, like, uh, uh, React is coming along and kind of gaining market share. And it seems like React is perceived as cooler than Angular at this point in time. Um, And, you know, two years from now, it'll probably be some other thing that's perceived as as cooler than React is now. And it's it's a little bit of a pros and cons type thing because I think there can be big opportunities when there are waves like that um, because if you see those waves coming, you can ride those waves. Uh, like that guy, Todd Moto,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, it seems like he really like got in front of the angular wave and that really served him well to yep. be seen as, as one of those early experts. So I think if you can do that, then that's great. But the challenge is that you kind of you might have to kind of reinvent yourself periodically in order to take advantage of those uh of those waves. I'm not really super sure if I know what I'm talking about, so don't quote me uh when I when I say <laughs> that stuff. But whatever the case may be, I don't want to be like a wave rider kind of person. I want to I want to write about things that are going to be evergreen. And when I make these really time-consuming investments in educating myself in certain technologies, I want the stuff I learn to to stay, you know, I don't want my knowledge to become obsolete a year or two from now. And so that's that's why my new direction is is the AWS stuff.
0: Yep. Sounds good. So, uh, yeah, I usually ask what you're working on now, but it sounds like we covered it, so.
1: Yeah, that's what it is. And I don't know exactly what form it'll take, but I'm probably going to copy the model that I used for Angular on Rails, but hopefully take it it further. So I'm going to start with blog posts. If the blog posts uh, get positive attention, then good. If they don't, then I'll probably pull the plug on the whole thing. But if they do, I'll probably do an ebook just like I did with mm-hmm. Angular on Rails. But then the thing that I want to do that I that I wasn't able to figure out with Angular on Rails is uh, some courses. Mm-hmm. Something I want to create something that would be worth like five hundred bucks to somebody. Right. And I don't know exactly what that'll be. Maybe it'll be something around certification or something like that. Maybe it'll be something totally different. But I want to create something that's that's really Valuable that I can sell for for kind of that five hundred dollar price point and then the um, corporate training because I found that like Angular was really good for corporate training. Mm -hmm. A a lot of companies wanted to train their developers on Angular. Almost nobody wants corporate training on Rails, at least in my experience. Um, But I do think that there's that there's a pretty big opportunity for corporate training for AWS. And related stuff, so that that'll be a part of it too. Cool. So that's one thing, and um, you know, I've I've kind of focused a lot on Angular on Rails, and then the AWS stuff. All of that has been a uh, side endeavor. The whole thing. Mm-hmm. What I what I do during my uh, during my working hours is development work for for clients. Uh, and I just real quick, I said I would give them a shout out, so I'm gonna the client I'm working with now is called GreenBits. Mm-hmm. I've been working with them for maybe about a month now. And they're, just a quick plug, they're awesome to work with and they are hiring. So if you're a developer looking for work, check out GreenBits. I like them a lot. But what they do is pretty interesting. It's a point of sale and accounting software for the legal marijuana industry. So that's been a pretty interesting domain to work with.
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. Interesting. Yeah. So if people want to get hired there or do contract work for them, do they just contact you or go to greenbits.com or something or how do, how do they do that?
1: Yeah, I think go to greenbits.com and you should be able to find a way to, to get in touch. Um, or if anybody wants to contact me for that reason or any other reason, you can email me at Jason at Ben Nice. And people are especially welcome to, uh, to get in touch with me if they have any questions about entrepreneurship as a developer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who has made like millions of dollars online or anything like that. So I can't tell you how to do that. Um, but I can tell you how I have made a few thousand bucks online and that's sometimes good to, to get a little bit of help from somebody who's just like just a couple steps ahead of where you are. Because uh, it, can, it can be hard to relate to those people who have, who have been really successful. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to talk with anybody about that kind of stuff.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, the last section of this show is picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side? Well then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section.
1: Sure. I'll do at least one pick. And that is the AWS book I've been reading. Uh, I guess we can link it up in the show notes because uh, I don't remember the title of it, but it's <laughs> yeah, it's a book about AWS. I just got <laughs> it.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, I'll make Jason make sure he gets me a link to that on Amazon or something.
1: Okay. And then my project, by the time this episode goes out, there will probably be something there to look at, even though there's nothing there right now. But um, awsrails.com is where my new website's going to live.
0: Nice. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to throw out a couple of picks here as well. I've been digging into kind of self-hosting some of the services that I use out there in the world, mainly because, for one, I'm tired of throwing money at GitHub and stuff, and I wind up throwing more money at GitHub than it would cost me to just self-host. So... I just set up GitLab and I really like GitLab. Uh, Lots of great uh, features there. I'm still trying to figure out how to get all of the things connected to it. Like I'd like to be able to do the GitLab pages, which is supposed to uh, have come out or uh, supposed to come out soon. But yeah, just as far as being able to like host as many free um, private repos as I want and then have full control. I'm also playing with using um, the issues tracker on here for, for a lot of the stuff here that I've, I've got going on. So anyway, so I'm liking that. The other one is Slack. Slack gets pretty pricey pretty fast as you add users because you pay like 6 bucks per month per user or something. So it's like 70 bucks per year per user. And uh, so there's a Slack clone out there that's also free. It's called Mattermost. I found both of these are really, really easy to set up, um, and so I set up a Mattermost server, and I'm running that um, for my business. I'm actually migrating everybody over to it now. That's on any of my Slack channels that I run, and uh, yeah, really, really digging that. Um, and it runs, it runs great. It's it's super nice. I don't know that it has all of the plugins that you have for uh, Slack. But at the same time, Zapier connects to Mattermost and will post to Slack. And so um, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. And I may dig into some of the other features and see if I can set up like custom commands and things like that. Um, but yeah, Mattermost is pretty cool. And I think they are actually acquired by GitLab. So we'll, we'll put that out there as well. And then, yeah, I've kind of been playing with an app of my own. And I'm, I'm wanting to build it on Rails 1 or 5.1 and... Angular, and so I'm kind of getting going with that, trying to figure out how to make it work with Webpacker. Anyway, it's. I, let me put it this way: I've been having some issues with with uh, podcast production just being consistent. Now, things went pretty well for the last month or so, but you know, this week, for example, it turned out that we were uh, slow. That you know things just didn't go the way I wanted this week. You know, so we have a couple episodes going out late again, which just bothers me, even if it's just a day or two. And so um, I, I want to build an app that tracks the production of things like podcasts or YouTube videos or things like that. And the other thing is, is I want to make it easy for my co-host to find the information because we've been using Google Docs, but nobody looks at the Google Docs. And then they're like, oh, well, was there information about this? And it's been there for a couple of weeks. So I just want to have it all in one place and kind of automate everything. And I can do that easier programmatically than by trying to cobble something together with Zapier, because trust me, that's what I'm doing now. So I'm working on a project and it's a single page app probably. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of something that I'm fiddling with. I'm doing it as a single page app mostly because I just want to see what it's like to build a single page app. So I may come back off of it, you know, and go, yeah, it doesn't need to be a single page app. But uh, for right now, that's, that's a lot of what I'm doing with that. So anyway, uh, great stuff. I'm having a lot of fun. I own the domain but it's probably not going to have anything up. I should put up just a if you're interested in this sign up. So maybe I'll do that. It'll be at podwrench.com, like pod for like podcast, wrench like a tool.com. Anyway, so uh yeah, I'm hoping to get a lot of that stuff together, but mostly I'm just pulling together the production end of things first, and then I'll probably pull in some of the other scheduling and automation stuff. Um and who knows, maybe I'll have it hooked into Zapier for things like schedule once and then have everything else work out however. Anyway, so that that's pretty much what I've got and what I'm working on as well. Yeah, one other place that you can go if you want to see what's going on, I've been uh, doing kind of a vlog or a video journal on YouTube. So if you go to youtube.com slash C slash devchat TV um, and look for The Daily Lasagna, you'll see my semi-daily videos. And I just talk about business and stuff. And then I also talk about this stuff on entreprogrammers.com. So, Anyway, enough about me and what I've got going on. One last plug, Ruby Dev Summit. Um, it's free to get a ticket. We just got Matt's scheduled as one of the speakers. We also have Uncle Bob Martin speaking, so it's going to be awesome. We have a bunch of other people. If, you're, if you've been in the Ruby community for a while, you'll know. Um, but yeah, cool stuff. Anyway, Jason, one last thing that I forgot to ask, and that is if people want to keep following you, like on GitHub or Twitter, or just see what you're... You're doing now with like AWS Rails or anything, where do they go?
1: Um, yeah, so following me on Twitter is a horrible decision because I barely tweet and when I do, it's just dumb stuff. But it's uh, just Jason Sweat on Twitter. That's S W E T T is my last name. And I'm pretty much Jason Sweat everywhere. So GitHub, Twitter, what are other things? I don't know. Jasonsweat.net is my website. And then, like I said, jason at benfranklinlabs.com is my email. So feel free to get in touch with me if you just want to chat about anything. I'm happy to uh, talk with listeners.
0: All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this episode up. Thank you for coming, Jason. Thank you. All right. We'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN.